morning. Welcome to Cultivate. Uh, it's good to be here with you this morning. Welcome to our family gathering. Uh, we call this the family gathering because we believe that we're the church, not by anything that we've done for ourselves, but by what God has done for us. We are going through a series called Reasonable Doubt. And what we're doing through the series, we're in week five, so we're just after the halfway point now. Um, but we're going through a series where we're looking at some of our culture's major doubts, major questions about the Christian faith. And we're taking a look at a different question each week and then asking the question, does our faith hold up to reasonable doubt? Okay? Um, so what we're doing through this whole series really is, is trying to, to display, demonstrate to, to you and those that you know that the, the, the faith that we hold to is a secure one. There, there are good reasons for uh, believing what we believe. And, uh, and, and so we're, we're kind of going through sharing all of those various reasons. That's, that's what we're doing. But, but here's the thing. You may not realize this, but I'm trying to, and Pete, I think, did a great job of this last week too. We're trying to model for you not just the content, although content is really important, but the kind of tone uh, by which to actually have a conversation with people. Because here's what happens a lot of times when it comes to having uh, arguments or conversations, dialogues about things where people differ in terms of their beliefs, particularly over religious beliefs. Um, it, one person kind of gives, gives off their beliefs and then they, in a sense, caricaturize the beliefs of somebody else so that they're easier to knock down, right? I mean, if you've watched any politics over the last, I don't know, 100 years, um, this is this is a common practice, right? It's called straw man. You build up this this person that could never stand on their own, and then you just a puff of air and it falls over, right? So we're not trying to do that. We're trying to actually say that there are doubts out there that people have about Christianity that in their minds are reasonable, and maybe in your minds too. And so we want to take those seriously and actually talk about what they are, and and, and then talk about what the Bible has to say and how the Christian faith counters some of those things but to do it with love, grace, and respect, right? Because um, here's the thing. I reminded you guys of this in the first week, but I want to say it again. Uh, your lives, the way that you live, particularly in community with one another and the way that you live with those who disagree with you, is the greatest apologetic. It's the greatest defense of the gospel that you believe. And so you can live in such a way where nobody wants to hear what you have to say, or every time you say you know, something about the Christian faith and how it counters maybe some of the other beliefs out there, that you do it in such a way that it rubs people the wrong way because you come off as arrogant or whatever. We don't want that to be the case, and I'm hoping that we're not presenting that case to you guys, okay? Does that make sense? So I wanted to remind you guys of that before we kind of go through this. Um, but last week, if you remember, Pete uh, came and he talked about science and faith. We asked the question, aren't those things mutually exclusive? And Pete, out of all the, the topics that we were picking, chose that one, okay? So that gives you an idea of Pete. <laughs> I, I gave him, a, you know, the run. He could pick anything he wanted. He chose science and faith. Um, but I also think he was the right person to do it. So, so thank you for doing that. This week, we're going to talk about the Bible. One of the major questions that people have with the Bible it has to do with its accuracy. And, and the last, it usually goes something like this. Isn't the Bible full of inaccuracies? I mean, just chock full of them if you were to read the whole thing cover to cover. And therefore, since it's full of inaccuracies, shouldn't we not rely on it as being true? 
right? How many of you have heard this out there? If you've gone to higher education in any form, you've had a class that talked about this, right? Um, so, so people tend to say a lot of things like this. That there are a lot of good things in the Bible, but you shouldn't take every word of it literally because some things that are in there are historically inaccurate. They just don't line up with history. Some things, though, are, are culturally regressive. They're harmful to, to society in general. And, and other parts of it are just plain wrong. And if you were to believe those things in the Bible, man, you just become a robot. If you, if you believe those things. So you shouldn't insist that this thing that we call the Bible is the Word of God and it has any kind of authority. It's a good book, just not the book, right? Um, so how do we answer this? Well, there are a number of doubts that are expressed about uh, various parts of the Bible. And if we were to go through all of them today, you guys wouldn't be having dinner tonight, okay? So... This is a sermon and, and not a book. There are a number of great books out there that talk about all these things. We're just not going to get to all of them today. But I, I want to focus our, our attention mostly onto the New Testament and particularly onto the Gospels that talk about who Jesus is. And there's a reason for that. Uh, because we call this thing Christianity, right? What's the first part of that word? Christ. If you don't get Christ, if you don't believe what the Bible says about Him, and you don't believe any of it. But if you believe what it says about him and you look at what Jesus says about the Bible and, and, and believe if, if the New Testament says it, that he is the Son of God, all the rest of that stuff comes with it. Okay, So he's kind of the linchpin. If you get him, you get everything. So we're going to focus our attention on him. And so here's the first thing to kind of note. The doubts about Jesus and, and the claims that the New Testament makes about him aren't new. Okay, they, they've been around for a really long time. People have been debating this for a very long time. But there are three kind of primary doubts that I want to look at today and see if we can get through all three of them, okay? Uh, and the first one is this. I already mentioned it a little bit. But the first doubt goes a little bit like this. The, the Bible is historically unreliable. It's historically unreliable. Is that a true statement? One of the big things that, that people often believe about the Bible and have a hard time believing about the Bible, uh, is expressed when they say this. You know, Jesus, he said a lot of good things. He was probably a really good guy. But most of what he said, most of what's written about him is probably legend in the New Testament. It shouldn't be read literally. Because, in fact, we don't know who the original Jesus was like, what, who he was or what he was like, because what was written about him was skewed for the sake of those who were in power. The idea that he claimed to be God, that he did miracles, that he rose from the dead, all those things were probably invented later on by church leaders because they wanted to keep people under, under their control. They wanted to consolidate their power. <clears throat> and so they ascribed some of these things to Jesus later on. He was a great human teacher. Don't get me wrong. But all the other evidence to say that he was more than that was suppressed somewhere along the way. Did you ever hear that? Yeah, I, I certainly have. Um, there are a lot of things that we can point to which show that actually none of those statements are true or correct. But I'm going to give you three of them, three reasons that you can trust the Bible and what it says about Jesus. And the first one is this, is that the Gospels, the, the letters that talk about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, the ones that are actually in our Bible, <clears throat> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those, were, those documents were written far too early to be legend. 
far too early to be legend. Here's what I mean by that. In Luke 1, the way that Luke, one of these documents, starts out, he begins this way. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So there was this guy out there. His name was Theophilus. He wanted to know more about the Christian faith, and apparently he was a pretty wealthy guy. And so he got an investigative journalist of sorts named Luke, who also was a doctor, and brought him in and said, I want you to investigate all these claims about Jesus and put them into an account so that all these things that I'm being taught by various people about Jesus and who he was and what he did, I want to know if they're true or not. And so Luke goes on an investigative journey and he talks to all the people that were eyewitnesses that saw all these things firsthand. And so you have to remember, when he's writing this letter, this is only 30 to 40 years after Jesus died. And so lots of people would have saw and heard all the things that Jesus had had done. They were still alive. They were still around. Otherwise, Luke wouldn't have been able to talk to them. And so what he's saying is, when he's writing this letter, look, if you don't believe me on this, go and check my sources. Because they're still here. Paul, uh, another New Testament writer, he wrote his letter even earlier than Luke, just 15 to 20 years after Jesus' life. And he writes in one place when he says this, For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and then He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Those are Jesus' first disciples. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So what Paul's saying is essentially the same thing. The majority of 500 people that saw Jesus walking around, eating meals, living life, after he had died with like scars in his hands and his side, most of them are still here. So if you want to find out if this is really true, go and talk to them. See, neither Paul nor Luke would be able to say any of these things, particularly in a publicly distributed document that would have gone out to some of these very same people who would have said these things. So unless they were true, how could they do it? So Jesus claims to be God, His miracles, Him being raised from the dead, every claim that the New Testament makes about Him, they must have happened. If they didn't, but the writers said or claimed that they did, they would have had potentially hundreds of people countering their claims and calling them out as liars. Can you imagine? We would have all these documents saying, nope, actually what Luke says isn't true. The Paul, this guy who claims that Jesus rose from the dead, that guy's a crackpot. I mean, don't listen to a word he says because I was there and it didn't happen. And yet we have nothing like that from history. One of the popular sources that we have today that has kind of given rise to people questioning the New Testament's accuracy <clears throat> is a book called The Da Vinci Code. Have you, have you ever read The Da Vinci Code, anybody? Watch the movie? Yeah. <laughs> I'm the same way. I'm gonna, yep, I'm going to watch the movie instead. Um, 
big Tom, or big, big uh, Tom Hanks fan. So, um, and, but even though the Da Vinci Code is fiction, one of the claims that it makes, actually the central one, is that Jesus' divinity, meaning his claim to be God, the teaching about him being divine, was an idea that didn't come around in the first century, didn't come around in the second century, didn't come around until 300 years after Jesus lived in something called the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325 A.D. And what he says in the book and in the movie, essentially, is that there was this really powerful guy, an emperor named Constantine, and he wanted to consolidate his power around the, the Roman Empire. And so in order to do that, he needed God on his side. And so in order to get God on his side, he said, this Jesus character that everybody seems to be fond of, we're going to elevate him from a good teacher to the position of God. And then if I'm a Christian, now I can say that I'm on God's side and everybody will have to listen to me. And my power will increase and everything will go well and, and, and people won't know the difference. We, just, we need to you know, squash all these other documents that say anything to the contrary. We'll just burn those so that we can go forward with this teaching that Jesus has gone. So it says he erased all the evidence to the contrary. And this is what ended up happening in the early church, which gave rise to us believing that Jesus was God. And here's the problem. Um, One of the New Testament letters that was written pretty early on was one of Paul's called Philippians. And, uh, And it is one of the earliest documents that we have. This is the best example that we have of both what the church taught and believed about who Jesus was. And, and one of the places in that letter, Paul quotes something that's even earlier than the letter. So the letter is only written 15 to 20 years after Jesus was around. And he essentially quotes a song that was popular among Christians, which even goes back further than that. And he says this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God. In other words, the essence of who he is, is God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. God made himself nothing in the form of Jesus Christ. This was the popular belief among Christians right after Jesus lived. So you can't say that this happened 300 years after the fact, when the New Testament claims over and over again that Jesus taught that he was God, that he believed he was God, and that Christians believed that he was God. See, if these claims weren't true, you'd have to wait until everyone who witnessed them was dead before you could say anything to the contrary, right? But you couldn't say Jesus rose from the dead, go ask those who saw them, if those same people would have corrected everyone who came asking. Do you see it? Jesus claims about who he was, the New Testament, and what it says about him. All these things. Here's the thing. Christianity would have never even gotten off the ground had these things not been true. It would have been something that we study about in history class, but not an active faith of over a billion people. So the question often comes at this point. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. But what about all the other documents? Like, what about all the other Gospels that are out there that paint a different portrait of who Jesus is? The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Mary. I mean, all these other things that are all out there, they claim to paint Jesus in a completely different light. How do you square those away? Well, the problem is that the, the, the one that's the earliest, 
And what I mean is that the closest to Jesus' life is the Gospel of Thomas. And that document, that letter is dated to 170 A.D. at the very earliest. See, the New Testament documents themselves are over 100 years older than it. So it would be like this. I'll give you a modern analogy. It would be like comparing an autobiography of Abraham Lincoln written by one of, its, one of Abraham Lincoln's cabinet members. I mean, think about how close a cabinet member is to a president. Cabinet member sits down and he writes a document about Abraham Lincoln. And now, write a, uh, now somebody else writes a biography about Abraham Lincoln today. And you put those two documents together and you say they are equally accurate about who Abraham Lincoln was. Would you say that? Of course not. One is 100 years after the fact and one of the guys knew him. Of course you'd go to the cabinet member and you say this was obviously the one that had inside information about who he was, when he lived. It's the same way with these other documents. It's easy to paint a different picture of Jesus when no one's no, no longer around who would say that's not true. It's only well after the fact that Christianity was already spreading around the Roman world, that people began to claim that this Jesus was something other than the Son of God. So that's the first. The second is this. The Gospels are too counterproductive to be legends. Another major attack on the Bible's accuracy says that the Bible was actually written in such a way to promote the policies of church leadership, consolidate their power so that they could subjugate groups of people under them. And so what these church leaders did is they ascribed all these qualities to Jesus that would have secured their authority. In other words, what they did was they wrote down what they wanted you to believe, not what actually happened, right? Let me do an experiment, though. I want you to put yourself in the place of somebody who is writing the New Testament, okay? Think of yourself as a church leader in the first century. You sit down to write a document about Jesus because you follow him. And you want to write it in such a way that it puts you in the best possible light, right? You're trying to get people to follow you. You're trying to get people to believe what you believe and to put you into a position of authority so that you can begin a movement, all these things, right? Have you ever read the New Testament? (laughs) I mean, really, if you were the one writing it and you were trying to put yourself in a good light, you wouldn't include half the stuff that's in it, right? I mean, think of all the things that are in it. I mean, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's crying out to his father, please let this cup pass from me. Does he look like a strong guy that you want to sell all your eggs and put it in that basket? No, right? He appears weak in the garden. Why would you include that story? Or think about the crucifixion. In the first century, everyone who was crucified was considered a criminal. If you say, I worship a God and he died on a cross, what are people going to say to you? He's a criminal. He's a fraud. He's a fake. Why would you worship that guy? You wouldn't include that. You would come up with some other better way for him to die, some glorious way for him to go down in flames like a war hero, not a criminal on a cross. Why? Another reason, why would you use women as the primary... um, witnesses in the New Testament. I don't mean that in a demeaning way, but here's the truth. I just, I realize I got to qualify what I say there. 
Yeah. <laughs> I got called a name by a woman earlier this week, so uh, yeah, she'll. <laughs> Culturally speaking, women in the New Testament were considered good witnesses. In fact, you could not put a woman on a stand in a trial because their testimony was not admissible in court. If you're trying to make a case for something, you would not use women in the first century. And yet every single gospel uses women as the primary witness, the very first ones that saw Jesus rise from the dead. Why would you do that? You wouldn't. Not if you're trying to build a movement. And, and finally, I think this is, this is the best one. Um, the New Testament document, have you ever read the, who the apostles, the disciples were in the New Testament? I mean, they look jealous and catty and like slow-witted, cowardly, petty. I mean, if you were going to build a movement around yourself, why would you depict yourself this way? It'd be ludicrous. It'd be like, I'm not following Peter. Have you read about him? He's crazy. I mean, he says the wrong thing at the wrong time. He declares that he's going to follow Jesus, and then he walks away. I'm not going behind that guy. If you're Peter, you're making sure that all that stuff is left out of the record, right? You're not including it, and yet it's all there. Why? It's too counterproductive to be legend. It can't be. The only way you'd include those elements is if they were actually true. It's the only way. You'd have no other reason. And you certainly wouldn't have let them remain there if you're a leader that's trying to get people to to follow you and do what you want. It makes no sense. Lastly is this, that the Gospels are far too detailed to be legend. They're far too detailed. One of the aspects of the Bible, and particularly the Gospels, that that people who doubt its authenticity forget is that it's it's genre. Genre is a a type of style of of writing, and people forget what that genre is. So let me ask this. How many of you have ever read a John Grisham novel? Quite a few people. How detailed are those? Pretty stinking detailed, right? You, you know, like, the, the color of the nail polish of the characters, right? I mean, it is so detailed. Uh, those of you who maybe aren't readers, how many of you watch CSI? Pretty detailed, right? Did you know that that, hot, that form of highly detailed novelistic writing was something that only came about in the last 300 years? Before then, everything that was written that was fiction included almost no detail at all. You want proof? Go read Homer's Iliad. It's a Greek fable. Anybody ever read that for class? You're like, what is going on? I don't connect with these people at all. They just seem distant and removed. And, and that's the point. Every, anybody watch the movie Beowulf? comes from a, a, an ancient piece of fiction writing. You know why it was a terrible movie? Not just the acting. The reason it was a terrible movie is because there's no plot to it. There's no realism. And we expect realistic writing in our fiction today because that's who we are. And and writing that was done in fiction back then, in the first century, was never detailed unless it was true. Those details were never included. So think of all the details that we actually see in the New Testament. In Mark 4, it says that Jesus was asleep in a boat on a cushion. Okay? Um, John 21, Peter was 100 yards out in the water when, when he saw Jesus on the shore, 
And, by the way, they caught 153 fish. (laughs) In John 8, it says that during a, a conversation with a woman who was caught in adultery, Jesus, in the middle of it, stooped down and started writing in the sand with his finger. I mean, who doodles in the middle of a conversation, right? And if you're writing about it, why do you include it? The, one of the best examples is this, Mark 15, 21. Um, when Jesus was being crucified, they asked somebody to carry the cross for him. His name was uh, Simon of Cyrene. And it says this, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing on, by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Think of all the detailed information that you know about Simon that is absolutely not pertinent to the story. You know where he's from, you know his name, you know that he's the father of two sons, and you know his son's names. I mean, you wouldn't include this kind of detail because it has no bearing on the plot or the character development at all. If you were writing CSI or John Grisham novel, he'd be picking up on this stuff all the time. But not if you're an ancient fiction writer. No way. That kind of detail was not there. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying this. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like, and I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either they are reportage, meaning eyewitness account, or else some unknown ancient author without any known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern realistic narrative. (laughs) there's an element of sarcasm in his voice. I don't know if you can hear that or not. In other words, there's no explanation for why they'd be part of this unless it was eyewitness testimony of real events. The, The Bible is historically accurate. You can trust what it says. But secondly, one of the doubts that I often hear, maybe you hear this too, is that the Bible is culturally unreliable. Even if it's historically reliable... I mean, there are a lot of things in it that cause a whole lot of trouble um, in terms of what it teaches. It's that many people, and and I've been in this case too, and I'm going to give you an example in a second, but they come up to a passage that seems to instruct or endorse slavery or, or seems to promote the subjugation of women, and they get offended. And And so many people will conclude once they get to that point that, There are good parts of the Bible. Don't get me wrong. When it says, love your neighbor as yourself, I'm all in. But we can't say it's entirely good because there's some stuff that's just harmful culturally. So what can we do when we encounter a section of the Bible that seems to really offend you? This is, I mean, this is stuff that you need to know as well as maybe people that that don't believe the Bible. What do you do? Well, I want you to consider this. Consider that the Bible may in fact be teaching something different than what you think it's teaching. It may be teaching something different than what you think that it's teaching. It's very easy to read the Bible and to, frankly, misread it. You get to a a section and you read something and you think it says one thing, but in reality it's teaching a different thing. One of the major reasons for that is because we tend to fail to understand that there is a major cultural gap between the first century and today. We, we kind of gloss over that, and we read it as 21st century readers 
rather than first century readers, and we read our culture into the text. One, of the, one great example of this, and one of the ones that was really personally hard for me, was that of slavery. Um, you read along in the Bible, and suddenly you get to a passage like Ephesians 6.5 that says, Slaves, obey your masters. Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. You get to that point, and I remember Ephesians was one of the very first books that I read of the Bible. One of the very first ones. And I'm reading along, and it's, you know, it's by grace you've been saved, not of works. This is not of yourself so that no one can boast. It is the gift. It's God's gift to you in Christ. And I'm thinking, yes, this is fantastic news. And then you get to the end of the book and it starts talking about slavery, and you go, what in the world? Right? I remember having a lot of trouble with this. And, I, and since then, I've talked to a lot of people that say, see, the Bible condones slavery, therefore it must be wrong on every level. You've got to throw it out. It's culturally backwards. But let me ask, what do we normally think of when we think of the word slavery? What's that? Our own history. Yeah. And, and what's particular about the slavery that we are familiar with? It's race-based, right? It's lifelong. It, it's, it's, it subjugates people into a life of indentured servitude where they have absolutely no say over their future. They are bought and sold like goods instead of people. Is that what the Bible means when it talks about slavery? One of the people that's been great at highlighting this is a guy named Murray Harris, and he wrote a lot about first century slavery, and he gives a a, a few really helpful insights. He says this, Slaves were, were not distinguishable from anyone else by race, speech, or clothing. They looked the same as everyone else and were not segregated off from the rest of society. Not only that, but slaves were sometimes even more educated than their owners and often held managerial positions in their households. Slaves even made the same wage as free laborers and were not financially poor in large part. Many would accumulate enough wealth to buy themselves out of slavery. And in fact, few people were slaves for life. Most of them got themselves out after 10 to 20 years of labor at the very most. You see what he's saying? It's a completely different system. So, you see, I mean, first century slavery was nothing like what we think of. In fact, the kind of slavery that we think of was condemned at large, all the time in the New Testament. And one of the examples of that is in 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. It says, The law was not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. And he's about to go on and say who these lawbreakers are. Who is a lawbreaker? For those who kill their fathers or mothers. That's pretty bad, right? For murderers, for adulterers and perverts, and for who? Slave traders. You see... Early Christians always condemned the kind of slavery that we think of today. Always. And unfortunately, we're not the only ones who've misread our Bibles in history. Because you say, yeah, but there were these people who read their Bibles, read Ephesians 6, 5, and then used that verse to go and enslave other people and say that God endorsed it. And you're right. They did. But, like I said, they were misreading their Bibles. 
They were doing something that the Bible categorically condemns always. And they were wrong for it. And since then, I mean, as, as just a, a person who is, is a, considered a Christian leader, I've had to apologize on behalf of people who claim to be Christians and did this kind of thing to other people. And as Christians, I would encourage you to apologize on behalf of those same people and say, they got it wrong, and I'm sorry that it happened, and there is no excuse for them to have done that. Absolutely none. But don't blame the Bible for their misreading, right? That would be wrong to do. But what about this? Okay, I read the Bible, and I've actually discovered what it meant about something. I, I'm reasonably sure that, that my interpretation of a certain passage is correct, and yet it, it offends the heck out of me. <laughs> what do you do when you're not misreading the Bible? Um, one of the things I would say is that when you study the Bible, uh, my advice to you would be this. To, particularly if you're new to this whole thing, it would be to, to distinguish between the central teachings of the Bible and less essential teachings of the Bible. Okay? There are ones that are going to be central, uniformly agreed upon, taught in, in, in almost every church, at least hopefully, and, and there are those that are fringe issues that are around the, the outsides of the conversation that, that if you try to, to wade into those waters, you're, you might get in trouble, at least to start with. You say, but I, I can't accept the Bible if it teaches something that I don't believe in a particular area. One of the great examples of this is, is over gender roles and the fact that the Bible teaches that wives should submit to their husbands and that the husband is the head of the wife. And you think, that's so outdated. How could you believe that? I can't accept the Bible if, if what it says about gender is completely outdated. And I would ask this maybe in response. Why would your objection to gender roles mean that Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead? You see what I'm asking there? If you have a particular objection to the way that the Bible talks about men and women, why does that mean that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? You wouldn't. You, you couldn't compare those two things, right? It's apples and oranges. And if Jesus is the Son of God, then we should certainly take his teachings seriously, including his confidence in the authority of the whole Bible. In, in other words, if Jesus... If he, if he isn't the Son of God, then why would you care what he teaches about men and women? I mean, he's just another guy, right? You can just, tune to turn that, you can just choose to turn that one off. But if he is the Son of God, then what he says about how men and, and women relate to one another, we would care a great deal about it, right? We may even care to the degree enough that we would, even if it offends us, say, maybe Jesus knows better than I do if he really is God right? Tim Keller uses a great analogy when he's talking about these things. <clears throat> he says, think of, the, of Christian teachings as a pool, okay? And all around the edges of that pool, there is shallow water. And then right in the middle of the pool is really, really deep water, okay? And the, the shallow parts, they, remem- they, they, they symbolize all the parts of the Bible or teachings that are on the fringe, right? They're, there's less teaching about them. There's less agreement. There, there's more conversation about those things. And then in the center of the pool are all the teachings about Jesus, the fact that he was the Son of God, that he lived a perfect life, 
that he died for the sins of the world, that he rose again in conquering over death, all all those things. If you were to dive into a pool, are you going to dive into the deep end or the shallow end? What happens if you dive into the shallow end? You break your neck, right? So don't dive into the deep end or into the shallow end. I totally messed up that analogy. You were with me until that point. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead, dive into the shallow end. My pastor told me to break my neck. In Jesus' name. (laughs) Because God loves me. Yeah. See, if you you dive into the shallow end, you break your neck. What happens if you dive into the deep end? You find yourself immersed in a new reality, right? You find yourself washed in a new perspective. And and here's the thing. The gospel is never so shallow that you will ever reach the bottom of it. Even if you chose to stay in the center of the pool, you could swim forever and never get to the bottom. It's that deep. It's that profound It'll change you that much. That kind of leads us to the last doubt that we tend to encounter, and that is this, that people often say that the Bible is personally unreliable. It's not just historically unreliable or culturally unreliable. It's personally unreliable. And uh, when I was coming to faith in Christ, I had a few uh, friends in college who had spent quite a bit of time reading the Bible, but who really weren't Christians. They read it more for informational purposes. And and they had come to the conclusion somewhere along in their reading that the Bible was good for instructing you on how to live, but that you shouldn't probably take every part seriously. And so they would pick and choose. They they liked the part about loving your neighbor, but the part about not getting drunk, um, I'm only going to listen to that one five days a week, (laughs) six days a week, right? Um, In other words, it's, Read it for an, as an instruction manual that occasionally gives you good advice. But don't submit your entire life to it because you'd be crazy. It's going to turn you into a robot if you do that. Um, but I started having some new friends when I was coming to faith who were Christians. They, they were Christian friends. They, they deeply believed the Bible. And none of them would read the Bible that way. It's very interesting. The way that they read the Bible was totally different than the way this other group of friends read it. When they read the Bible, it was like they were having a personal encounter with God. They didn't walk away feeling like they had gotten good advice. They walked away just absolutely in love with Jesus. I I remember walking into my roommate one time as he was reading the Bible, and I saw tears streaming down his face. I'm like, what are you doing? You know? It was, it was personally transformational. It wasn't just informational. They were having a, a love encounter with God as they read the Bible. And I, for a long time, I didn't understand the difference between the first group and the second group until I read this in, in John 5, verses 39 through and 40. Jesus says this. He says, You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. In other words, you sit down and you read your Bible because you think that by it, you're going to gain really good instruction for your life and you're going to feel justified for the way that you live, right? 
And there are many who sit down and read the Bible in order to get a justification by proving that it's not right. He says, but you're never going to find life that way. These are the scriptures. When you sit down to read these, these are the scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What he's saying is that there are many people who read the Bible because they're looking for a better way to live. They search and they search and they search and they never find. But there is a way to read your Bible and to find life. But that way is only if you read it as being all about me. That's the only way that you read it and find personal transformation is if you read it and discover that every single page, every single verse is all about Jesus. Some of you, I think, and, and don't, I'm not just saying you in terms of being in the room, but I know there are a lot of people that listen to this podcast too who have read the Bible and walked away because you did not understand this point. So let me ask you, when you read the Bible, is it all about you and what you must do and how you must live up and all the rules that you must obey? Or is it all about Jesus and what he's done for you, the life that he lived on your behalf so that you could have life in him? One way will lead you towards self-condemnation or to be proud over your life. The other way will lead you to have confidence and faith and love for him. And there are only two ways to read the Bible. Which way are you reading it? See, the only way that you encounter a love relationship with God is if you read your Bible and you discover that it's all about him. That's the only way that it works. Every page, every verse, all about him, all the time. You walk away going, God is so good. He's been so faithful to me. And what happens to your heart? You begin to personally trust in God because you trusted in what God said through his word. If you read it as all about you, then it all becomes about what you must do or not do. And you tend to like the parts that tell you the things that you already believe, and you don't like the parts that tell you or offend you in certain ways and tell you to do things that you don't believe. You will never encounter God that way, ever. The second part of that is this. The only way that you come to know God deeply and personally is when you believe that the entire Bible has authority over you. Every page, all of it, has authority to tell you how to live and who to worship. It's the only way that you get there. And here's, here's why. Um, tomorrow is uh, Mandy and my seventh wedding anniversary. So... <clears throat> So um, I've gotten to spend seven years with my best friend, and I'm incredibly thankful for that. I'm incredibly thankful for the way that God has shown and demonstrated his love to me through this godly woman. Uh, She continues to teach me more and more and more about Jesus and his love for us and his mission for us in the world, and um, I'm just so thankful to God for her. I'll stop embarrassing her now. For now. Um, so we've been married for seven years, and, um, and throughout our, our entire marriage, we've also had a dog. <clears throat> we adopted our dog soon after we got married, and he's seven years old too. And so after seven years of marriage and owning a dog, I've come to a profound conclusion. 
<laughs> People are going, are you, want, are you sure you want to go here because your, your anniversary is tomorrow? It may not, year eight may not go very well for you, depending on what you say next. So be careful. I'll, I'll dance on the ice carefully, okay? Um, I've learned this. There is a major difference between my wife and my dog. All right, there's more than one difference, but I'm going to talk about one. There are probably more important differences. We won't get to those today. The one I want to talk about is the the major difference is that Mandy gets to tell me no. Right? I I think I've trained my dog reasonably well, right? Um, 95% of the time, he does exactly what we tell him to do. He's a great dog. Um, 95% of the time, though, if I were to say to Mandy, you should do this, what's her response? No. (laughs) It's completely opposite, right? So how do I know that I have a marriage and not a pet? I'm just digging my hole deeper, I know. Because she has the ability to say no, right? And so... She doesn't always do what I say, and sometimes she needs to correct me. That's how I know we have a relationship, because she's a real person and has a real opinion. And sometimes, maybe most of the time, her opinion is better than mine. And so I listen to her, and I've cultivated a trust for her, right? Over time. I don't sit down and consult my dog and say, hey, Riley, what do you think we should do? There's a relationship. You see where I'm going with this? In the same way, (laughs) move on quickly, right? (laughs) In the same way, if you get to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that are true and that have authority over you, you don't have a God. You have a pet. You have a pet. You have somebody that you can yank around on a chain and tell what to do because their opinion, their authority submits to yours. You are the dominant one. You're the pack leader. See, if God is really God, though, then He has the right to disagree with you, does He not? He has the right to confront you and correct you when you're wrong. He has the right to offend you even because He's God and you're not. In other words, a a fully authoritative Bible that you can trust and that you can rely on, that you can build your life on, that you can submit yourself to and trust that it has authority over your life in all circumstances isn't the enemy to a personal relationship with the true God. It is the foundation. It's the only way that we come to Him because He's God and we're not. And here's the proof. The person that has the closest relationship with God is who? Jesus. You know what Jesus was really good at? Knowing the Bible. I mean... Every situation that Jesus was in, he's constantly quoting it. I mean, when he's in difficult times, he quotes it. When he, he's in good times, he quotes it. When people come at him with questions, he quotes the Bible. When he's attacked by Satan himself in the desert, what does he do? He quotes Scripture. I mean, you cut him and he bleeds Scripture. That's who he is. How do you say, yeah, but he was the Son of God. Yes, but he was a human too, and he was demonstrating the life that we should live as his, right? And Jesus had full confidence in the Bible. 
It's the way that he knew God, and it's the way that we know God too. So if you want to know him, if you want to fall in love with him, please read your Bible. Get into a life group or into a missional community where you're going to study the Bible and learn more about him. It's the only way that you're going to grow in a relationship with him. It's the only way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as your people for your word. Thank you that you've chosen, we believe, to speak to us through it. And God, just as we believe that you have authority over all things, we believe that you've written down everything that we need so that we would be underneath your good leadership. And so I pray, Lord, that we would have confidence in what we read. Help us to know that it's historically accurate and reliable, that we can trust it from that standpoint. And when others come and have questions, we can dialogue about it openly, honestly. But it doesn't undermine our faith because our faith is in you and we know that you're God. Thanks, Lord, that there are things in there which counter us and offend us even sometimes. And, uh, I, Lord, I don't take that as, as a reason not to ascribe to the Bible its worth. I, I, I take that as a, as a good reason to know that it's from you. Because if something always agrees with me, I know that it's for me and not from you. So help us to have confidence in it, not just historically, not just culturally, but especially personally. Let us be people of the word. Let us be people who find our life in what you've said about us and who we are in Christ. Let us go into the world as your people, confident of what you've said to us, knowing that you have a word for this entire world, because one day you're going to come back and reign. And we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.